It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only, call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 93- 3-1-381-4567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you to the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, October 8th, 2015. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you tonight. Good to be with you as well. I'm glad that you're on the other end of the line. We look forward to hearing from you at 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. Use those ways to contact us at any time. If you happen to be listening to this in the recorded version, we'd love to hear from you at any time. Before we get going tonight on a program that I'm looking forward to, uh, we've got a few announcements to make. Yeah, uh, we we mentioned uh, on a previous episode, but we want to really build up to a couple of things that are happening here at College View and uh, in just a little over a week. A week from tomorrow, Friday night, the 16th, we're going to have a singing here at College View at 7 p.m. Many in this area know Jim Deason. Uh, uh, he's a great preacher of the gospel, but he's also a very good song leader. And he's going to come and lead us in singing um, on Friday night, the 16th, at 7 o'clock. So uh, if you're within a drive of Columbia, Tennessee, you won't be sorry for making it to that singing. Then on Sunday the 18th, just a couple days later, a week from this Sunday on the 18th, we begin our gospel meeting. And uh, we're going to have different speakers each day running through Friday of that week. And it will be 7 o'clock on weeknights, our normal time, Sunday morning. We'll have an afternoon service at 2.30 on Sunday afternoon. And then 7 o'clock each night that week. It's the 18th through the 23rd. And so if you're within a driving distance of Columbia, Tennessee, we want you to come to the singing. We want you to come to the gospel meeting. Our speakers for that gospel meeting, Sunday going to be Kevin Maxey, Monday Jim Michaels, Tuesday Paul Smithson, Wednesday Timothy Ruffin, Thursday Lee Wildman, and Friday Gary Smalley. So... All those men will help bring great lessons from the Word of God, and we encourage you to come if you can. Find out more about it at our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. We'd love to have you join us if you're anywhere near Columbia, Tennessee. We look forward to being with you if you can come. You know, you've been saying, Jacob, that you know, all of our past episodes are in the archives, they but are. there are so many there now that you'll never catch up. But somebody you, is trying. Somebody in the chat room is hard. working at catching up and has yeah. come all the way up to yeah. the year 2013. Mentioned, we've mentioned months. her before. She's been giving us updates periodically. She's up to October of 2013. She's two years behind, and she's catching up fast. Yeah. She started in January. So if she, at this rate, she could potentially be done. By the end of the year. That's a lot of listening. That's a but lot there's of listening. a lot of information out there, too. Thank you for doing that, and, yeah. thank, and, and we look forward to continued updates on your progress. If anyone else is up to the challenge, uh, yeah. start it now. <laughs> you can do it. Yeah, All right. yeah she's proven that you can yeah. do it. Thank you very much. 
Jacob, tonight on the Virtual Bible Study, we want to start what is going to be at least a three-week-long discussion yes. dealing with the question of wine in the Bible. Three weeks long. Unprecedented that we've, we've yeah. spent that long, I, I think, unprecedented on any one subject, but it is a very we, important subject. Yeah. We've talked about it before on the Virtual Bible Study, but I was uh, uh, I was privileged to be a participant in a study, a two-day study earlier this week in Cullman, Alabama, and uh, the topic was social drinking. I was assigned one of the lessons to teach. We want to review that what I taught down there tonight. But then uh, some other speakers brought just excellent lessons, and we hope to be able to interview at least a couple of them in ensuing weeks. And so uh, we're going to be on this theme a little while because we think it's really an important theme. The reason being is that I think that there's a, a lot of compromising message getting out about the idea of Christians drinking alcohol, uh, it is very common. I mean, very common to hear Christians and uh, and a number of preachers taking the position, I don't drink, but I don't think that you can say it's wrong to drink alcohol, yes. at least to drink alcohol moderately. Yes. Uh, I think everybody, we're not even going to talk about the sin of drunkenness. Everybody agrees that drunkenness is a sin. I mean, at least I haven't run into anybody that argued that point. The question is, though, about the so-called moderate consumption of alcohol. And a lot of people are giving what I think is an uncertain sound. They're saying, well, I don't do it, but I don't think you can say it's wrong. Understand that if, if that message is promoted, then there are going to be some people who take it and run with it. And, and we're, we're really asking for trouble, I think. Now, we've said for a long time that Christians tend to follow society at a distance. And as society moves, Christians move with them, unfortunately. And there is no better example, I think, than this subject that we're talking about tonight. Not many years ago, our society was uh, very much against alcohol in general. Uh, most anyone who claimed to be religious at, of, of any stripe uh, would say that drinking alcohol was not something that should be done. Our society has moved, and, and, and Christians have moved along with society Dad, 20 years ago, finding someone who claimed to be a Christian who would defend the drinking of alcohol was very rare. Yeah, you would have to search. There may have been people who took that view, but they were at least at least their their view was such a minority one that they wouldn't at least announce it. I've ran into the first uh, instance that I can recall 15 years ago when a group of young people were defending the consumption of alcohol on a moderate basis. And that was a very radical position at the time. Just blew me away, blew the uh, others away as well that were in that discussion. And yet now the tide has gone so far that... Now, we're, now we are considered to be the ones radical. taking a radical yes. position when we say Christians shouldn't consume alcohol. So things have changed. Yeah, and, and, and they're changing fast. And they're changing fast. And so we need to, we need to know what the Scriptures teach the next three weeks uh, will uh, there'll be a break in that period? Yeah. But uh, in the next in three hours worth of the virtual Bible study, we want to definitively determine what the, the scriptures teach. I've got uh, again. I'm going to want to go through some material that I presented at this special study tonight. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to have a fellow named Kyle Pope from Texas, and I I, I just want to tease this topic because I think it is so interesting. He deals with. Was it possible for people in that era, first century, when Jesus lived, and even before, 
Was it possible for them to preserve grape juice in unfermented form? Yeah. We've argued that they could, and we've referenced uh, different uh, works that indicated they had a different different methods to do it. Cal Pope has actually done it. He's performed the experiments, had them verified at West Texas A&M University, and it very very enlightening. Yeah, uh, amazing discoveries yeah. that he's made. Well, it's, it's well, not, not new. It's not, not yeah. but verifications that he's made uh, that show that uh, that it was possible. We don't want to take too much away from him next week, but uh, you want to be here for that. Yeah. Uh, because that's the argument. Well, th- th- there's no way they could preserve grape juice, and so everybody was just going around drinking yeah. wine, yeah. alcoholic wine. Yeah. yeah, and so we'll talk yeah. about that next week. All right. uh, and, but anyway, tonight what we want to talk about is Jesus and wine yes that was the topic i was assigned to teach in this special study I, w- I want to start out jacob by just saying that i hear something that i think doesn't make sense at all i hear people saying i don't drink i think it's i, I think it's wise to not drink but i believe jesus did yeah now think about that i don't do it because i think it's wise not to but Jesus did it. Jesus is the epitome of wisdom. Yes. If Jesus did it, then it's wise. If Jesus used wine, if he promoted the use of wine, then it's a wise thing to do. And we couldn't argue that it's wise to abstain when Jesus, it, it, when and if Jesus used wine, then he was establishing it's the wise thing to do. I just think that's a self-contradictory position. Yes, absolutely. If if I want to be, if I'm claiming to be a Christian, I want to be like Jesus in every aspect of my life that I can. If if I knew that Jesus parted his hair on the left hand side instead of the right side, I'd be parting my hair on the uh, on the other side. Yeah. If I if I because I want to be like him in every aspect of my life. Jesus, if Jesus is producing wine, we'll get to the wedding feast here in a minute, if he's producing wine and giving it to others to be consumed, then I, where in the world do I make the conclusion, well, I'm just going to, I think it's not wise to drink it. Jesus didn't think that. Jesus thought it was wise. Yeah. Jesus endorsed it, yeah. promoted it, and I need to be doing the same. Yeah. First Peter 2.21 says that he left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Absolutely. Well, then this would be part of that example. If he used wine... If he made it and gave it to other people to drink, that's what we ought to be doing. Yeah. I just don't know. I don't know how you can, but I hear lots of people taking that position and I think they haven't thought that through. Uh, if, if Jesus did it, it's the wise thing to do. If on the other hand though, Jesus did not use wine, then we would be right to oppose the use of alcoholic drinks and, and, uh, and, and to oppose it strongly. And, and, and of course that's, I think probably all of our listeners already know that's where we're going to end up. At least for our part of this study, that's where we're going to end up because that's the position we hold, and we believe we hold it because the Bible teaches it. If you disagree with us, we'd like to hear from you, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com, and in the chat room tonight, if you're listening to us live, uh, join in the discussion there. Uh, what do you think Jesus' position was on, on, the, on the use of alcohol? Again, this isn't a middle-of-the-road type of, of stance. Yeah. He, he was either for it or he was against it, and if he was for it, you ought to be for it as well. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna do we're gonna look at two things relative to Jesus. One is, did he, by his personal practice, endorse the use of intoxicating wine? Mm-hmm. And then, the second part of this study is, did he, by what he taught and said, did he 
support the use of intoxicating wine. All right, in that latter part of the program, and we'll get to it later on tonight, we're going to get to the old, uh, the, the, the parables, new wine and old wine skins. Uh, new wine is better, old wine's better than new wine. Yeah. Uh, things like that. So let us know your thoughts on that. Now, now, I want to, I want everybody to understand that basically when we're looking at these, these things about Jesus, we're basically taking the position that a, a negative, uh, debater would take in a, in a debate forum. Because basically when we approach these texts about Jesus and wine, we're approaching them because proponents of social drinking are using them to try and teach that it's okay to drink wine. These are not, not any of the ones we'll look at tonight, these are not the texts that we would go to to teach someone to be an, a total abstainer from right. wine. They don't prove the point. They don't, and so we're not, we're not dealing with that tonight. We're not, we're, there are affirmative arguments to make, I think. And we'll get to that, those in future programs. That's right. That would say Christians should abstain totally from drinking alcoholic drinks. Right. But in dealing with the text that we're going to look at tonight, we're not in the affirmative. We're basically showing that when people go to these references of Jesus' practice and teaching, when they try to use them to, to verify their desire to use alcoholic substances, we just want to show that their, their arguments don't hold water. Okay. You can't use these passages that way. All right. Let us know as we go along if you disagree or you agree with us. The first thing we've got to look at, and it's probably the first place that people will go as they're trying to defend the practice of social drinking, is the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, Jesus' first miracle. And he, in the miracle, as we all know, converts water into wine. Yeah. And so those who want to defend social drinking say, well, there you go. Jesus made alcoholic wine, so if he's going to make it, he wouldn't make something he didn't want people to consume. Therefore, it's okay to consume it. That, that is uh, undoubtedly the most popular argument, I think, from the life of Jesus is the wedding feast at Kenny Galilee. The text is John 2, verses 1 through 11. Mm-hmm. We won't take time to read that just for sake of time. But I think most of our listeners will be familiar with it. It is used emphatically to teach that it's okay to drink wine. Um, a fellow named Whit Wiltenberg said, at the very least, the story of Cana's wedding feast indirectly approves the use of alcoholic beverages. Uh, Burton Kaufman, who's a commentator associated with Churches of Christ, said, the opinion of the ruler of the feast that the wine Jesus made was superior in quality to that that they had drunk earlier supports the conclusion that it was not merely pure grape juice. To read wine as grape juice seems to this writer to be a perversion of the Word of God. In other words, he, say, he says we're perverting the Word of God when we say that what Jesus made there was just the equivalent of grape juice. Now, we're, I should say something else about what we're assuming in this discussion. Now, we're assuming that those listening to this understand that in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, the words that are translated as wine in our English can mean anything from freshly squeezed grape juice all the way to intoxicating fermented wine. And so in, in, in both the Old and the New Testament, in the Old Testament Hebrew and in the New Testament Greek, you have to let the context determine for you whether the wine under consideration was the equivalent of what we would call grape juice or was it intoxicating alcoholic wine. Now, there was fermented intoxicating alcoholic wine. People got drunk. They got drunk in the Old Testament. They got drunk in the New Testament. And there are strong condemnations of drunkenness, and everybody agrees to that. But we're going to... As we go through this discussion, I understand that when we read wine relative to the life of Jesus, 
It could be grape juice or it could be fermented, intoxicating alcoholic wine. We have to decide from the text. So some of these fellows that are commenting see it absolutely, that it is absolutely alcoholic. But a lot of other people say otherwise. Uh, uh, an author named Tory said there's not a hint that the wine he made was intoxicating. There's not a hint that our Lord produced alcohol. So there are people on both sides of this question, lots of people on both sides of this question. So how do we decide? And I think the only way we can decide is by looking at the context, looking at the circumstances, especially looking at the character of Jesus and his influence and example. And the implications of it being, if it was alcoholic. Let's grab our first break, and when we come back, we'll dive into that. If you've got thoughts in the chat room tonight or over the phone, let us know. What do you think? Did Jesus produce alcoholic wine at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee in John chapter 2? When we get back, we'll look at the arguments. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study will continue right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The virtual Bible study will be back right after this. I'm Joel Gwynn, a member of the College View Church of Christ with something for you to think about regarding our children. A survey published in the periodical Pulpit Helps analyzed the question of faithfulness among the children of churchgoers. The results are interesting. It was found that faithfulness in kids was not a function of the size of the congregation, the number of classes and special programs sponsored by the church, the effectiveness of the youth minister. Instead, here is what was discovered. In cases where both parents were faithful and active, 93% of their children remained faithful to their religious training. When only one parent was faithful and active, the percentage dropped to 73%. When parents were only reasonably active, attended services, but that's all, their kids remained faithful only 53% of the time. And finally, when the parents attended the assemblies only infrequently, the children's endured at a mere 6% level. The results of this survey are interesting, but not terribly surprising. We've known all along that people, including children, often learn more from example than from the words they hear. That's why Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5.16 Parents, have you considered applying Jesus' concept right there in your own home? Are you letting your light shine before your kids? Survey results. Our own common sense and the Bible tells us that this is the only hope that we have to bring them up fearing God. Here's some quotes worth pondering. However dear any sentiment may become by being long entertained, so soon as it is seen to be contrary to the Bible, we must be prepared to abandon it without hesitation. When unforgiveness is in the heart, criticism will be on the lips. Man, wish I'd said that. Share your comment with the world. Call in now and be a part of the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program. We're back on the program tonight as we talk about wine in the Bible, and we're looking at Jesus' practice and his teaching to determine if Jesus condoned the moderate consumption of alcoholic beverages tonight. Starting with the, the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, Jesus made water, turned water into wine, and the question well, is, was it alcoholic? Well, a couple arguments are made. One argument is that the expression well drunk is used by the ruler of the feast. In John chapter 2, verse 10, when he tasted what Jesus has made, he objects. He says, wait a minute. He said, this is verse 10, John 2, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. It's argued that that phrase, well drunk, indicates that the the guests at the wedding feast were being served intoxicating wine and that they were already, at this point, somewhat inebriated. And the the ruler of the feast says, this doesn't make sense. Why have you kept the good stuff? These these people are already drunk now, uh, are are already impaired enough 
that they won't be able to tell that this is actually superior stuff that you're giving us at this point. Right. So it's argued that that proves that what was what they were drinking was alcoholic and that Jesus made more of the same. But uh, but if you think about that just from a, a logical point of view, if they were uh, if if they were really intoxicated or at least somewhat intoxicated when Jesus made that additional wine, they would not be able to tell that this is better stuff now. Yeah. Uh, one of the fellows that was at the at the meeting that I attended earlier this week said, "I used to drink." He he before he was a Christian, he was going down that road. He said, "After you've had a drink or two, he said you can't t- you're not you're not drinking for taste. You can't tell what you're tasting. He said you're drinking for effect." And so that's what we're arguing here. If they were already somewhat intoxicated, they wouldn't have been able to even tell that this was better stuff that Jesus was giving. The point is, though, that the the Greek word drunk here is the Greek verb or noun here. Uh, it has both noun and verb form. Drunk comes from the Greek root methusko, and it can mean intoxicated. And sometimes when it's used, in fact, frequently when it's used in the Bible, it means to be intoxicated. But that word also means simply to be full or satiated. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's what is being uh, how it's being used here. These people had had a lot of drink already, not necessarily alcoholic drink. I don't think it was alcoholic drink. Uh, th- they were satiated. Why would you keep the good stuff until the people are already full? Basically, they're not, they're not wanting any more. They don't even care for anymore. They've had all that they want. Yeah. But you can't infer from that that they were drunk and that Jesus made more of the same. Uh, I, I think that argument fails from John 2, verse 10. Okay. But then the next thing that is said uh, is that the, the ruler of the feast calls this good wine. Yeah. And the argument being... Well, it was good because, man, you could really get drunk on it. Yeah. It, w- it was good stuff. I mean, you didn't take a lot of that. You could really get to, lit. Yeah, you could yeah. really get a buzz yeah. from, from this wine. Yeah. Um, now, just what, think about the implications of that. Jesus is, is really making the stuff that really get you buzzed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're going to talk about his example here in just a minute. Yeah. But uh, there's indication that the people of that day did not judge wine based upon how drunk you could get by it. In fact... There's indication. Uh, Plutarch and Horace, early century writers, said that the good wine, the best wine, was that which was harmless and innocent. Pliny indicated that good wine was that which was destitute of spirit. Yeah. Again, what we've got here is uh, just logically... The good wine was not intoxicating. If if he's talking about, if the ruler of the feast was talking about the ability to get drunk on this stuff, how would he know that just as soon as he drank it? You couldn't tell the intoxicating power of the wine just as soon as you tasted a little of it. What you could tell just as soon as you tasted a little of it was it has a better taste. He yeah. was just talking about the taste. He wasn't yeah. talking about its intoxicating properties. That's important to note that he yeah he's make he makes that uh, that uh, distinction after he's tasted it, not after it's had its effect. Yeah. Okay. But I think the strongest thing to, to reason about concerning this episode is concerning the moral implications of what Jesus did. John two verses six and seven says there were six water pots of stone there. They each held two or three firkins apiece. A firkin, which we're not familiar with, is a little over eight and a half gallons. And so Jesus made perhaps in excess of a hundred and ten gallons of wine. Now again the wine could have been 
simply grape juice. They would have used that word to denote simple grape juice. Mm -hmm. Or it could have been intoxicating wine. Which was it? Well, whatever conversion factor you use, you, you, have to, you have to acknowledge that Jesus made a lot of wine. And if these people were already somewhat intoxicated from the wine that they had been drinking, then he was aiding and abetting their drunkenness. Yeah. Remember, the, the, the rule of the feast said these people are well drunk. They've had a lot. They've had a lot. If it was, if it was just grape juice, they'd had a lot of it. If it was intoxicating wine, they'd had a lot of it. They were full of it. Yeah. Uh, and now Jesus is making more. And so if, this, if, if they had been drinking intoxicating wine and Jesus made more intoxicating wine, then he was, abate, he was aiding and abetting their drunkenness. Someone might ask, well, we don't know how many people were there. If he made 110 gallons of wine, 120, 160, I heard one fellow say 180 gallons of wine. Yeah. Well, you know, if, if we don't know how many people were there. If there was, if there was 1,000 people there, then that's not that much for each one. Don't forget they were well drunk already. Yeah. And if that was intoxicating wine, they were already drunk. And any more, even a sip more, was pushing them more into the realm of drunkenness. Yeah. It doesn't matter if, how many people were there. If they hadn't had any already, yet he's made uh, enough quantity here that he could get people yeah. well uh, lit if they, are, if they well, were perfectly sober when they started. One source that I referenced said that impairment can come with as little as 10 fluid ounces of wine. Drunkenness for a low-weight, body-weight person can commence with as little as 15 fluid ounces of uh, alcoholic wine. So Jesus made enough to impair. I think the way I calculated, he, he made enough, easily made enough to impair more than a 1,000 people, impair their judgment. He, made, he easily made enough to get 800 people drunk. Yeah. So I don't care how many, it doesn't even matter how many people were there. If they were, as the ruler of the feast acknowledged, already well drunk, and if you think that that means they were intoxicated, I don't, but if you do, and Jesus made more intoxicating wine, I don't think that, but if you do, then he was helping people who were already intoxicated get more intoxicated. And there's a couple of Bible verses that, apply, uh, that, that pertain to that. Habakkuk 2.15 says, Woe to him! This is Habakkuk 2, verse 15. Woe to him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Yeah. So the, the prophet Habakkuk states a woe to those who would make their neighbor drunk. Well, Jesus would then be guilty of that woe, or would receive that woe for what he did. Luke chapter 17, beginning verse 1, Jesus himself said, It is impossible, but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanging about his neck and cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. But if Jesus helped make these people more drunk than they already were, then he placed a stumbling block before them. He caused an offense. Well, he's making it. He's making it without uh, distinction or or concern that there would be those there who were already drunk. And he's going to make this alcoholic wine without any regard for that. He's going to provide more. Now, think about this. If they were consuming alcoholic wine at this feast, and they have, this was a wedding feast, and if it was alcoholic wine that they were consuming, they've already consumed all of it. They were, they were, they were, they were drinking wine in excess. They've consumed all that they had, and Jesus makes more in addition to that, in excess, up to 180 gallons more. 
Compare that with what we read in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3. that We have spent enough of our past life in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. If that is not the picture of a drinking party in John chapter 2, if they were consuming alcoholic wine, in which they had already drunk all that they had, and Jesus is making 180 gallons more to help the party keep going along, if that's not a drinking party that Jesus was a part of, what is it? Paint for me a picture of a drinking party. How does it look? I'd say if they're drinking alcoholic wine in John chapter 2, it looks exactly like that. Yeah. All right. Uh, Aaron in Texas writes, It is not specified whether the wine that Jesus made at the wedding feast was fermented or not, but since Jesus could make it any way he wanted, I cannot think of a reason for him to create fermented wine, especially in large quantity. Therefore, though the text does not say, I believe that this wine was not fermented. I agree. Although I think I can be more definite about that. I, I, I'm, I state unequivocally that, that it was not alcoholic wine. I just don't think there's any way it could be and harmonize with the character of Jesus as we just tried to describe. Now, Aaron's in the chat room and he mentions a couple of, he mentions one Old Testament text that we hope to deal with in future weeks. We're going to, we're going to stay concentrated on Jesus and new, and, and what we read from him in the New Testament, but he mentions Deuteronomy 14.26. He says it seems to be that strong drink seems to be permitted or endorsed in Deuteronomy 14.26. I don't agree. I don't think it's permitted or endorsed there for consumption, but we're going to hold that conversation till later. By the way, he also mentions oxos in the New Testament, sour wine. That that word oxos is, is vinegar, and it is not intoxicating, according to the sources that I referenced, but we can talk more about that at another time, too. Okay. Now, back to your point you made earlier about people who say, well, I don't think the Bible condemns drinking, but I don't think it's wise. I don't drink myself. Let's again compare that with Jesus. We're trying to, you're a Christian. You want to be like Jesus. Jesus doesn't have, obviously, if, if this is alcoholic wine in John chapter 2, Jesus doesn't have that same view that you do. Yeah. He does not think it is unwise to drink. He's helping people drink. Yeah. He doesn't think it's unwise to abstain. He's telling people they need to be drinking as he's given them this, this wine. So, again, your position does not parallel Jesus as you claim to be a Christian and with that with that view. It's either you, you're for it or you're against it. Now, I heard a preacher make this point. I thought it was very, very applicable. If Jesus is producing wine at the wedding feast of Cana Galilee in John chapter 2, not only is it okay to consume alcohol, it's okay to produce it. To be, to be the distiller or the producer. It's okay to be the distributor. Because he did. He distributed yeah. it to the people. It's okay to open up the, the package store and sell it. Now, nobody wants to go there. But that's what Jesus did. But logically, you have to accept those, alcoholic wine. You'd have to accept those as consequences of your position. Yes. You know, and But nobody wants to go there. Oh, but I wouldn't want to produce it because I can't be sure that the people that are buying it aren't going to go and get drunk with it. Well... Jesus did. He did. He if it was alcoholic wine, he produced it and just gave it out. He produced it for people who were already drunk. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly it just right. doesn't make sense. Well, we're gonna we're gonna not have time to cover all this, but that's okay. We'll keep okay. we'll keep digging in here. We're gonna we, talk about the accusation that Jesus was a wine bibber when we come back from this break. All right. We'll take that on the other side. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back right after this week's bullet point. Enjoying the virtual Bible study? Email a friend during this break and tell them to join in on the discussion. There's more exciting Bible study after this commercial. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's Bullet Point. In a sermon I once preached, there was a point made about Paul's dialogue with the Roman official Felix. You can read about that in Acts chapter 24, beginning verse 24. I stressed that Paul taught Felix about God's law, urged him to obey it, and warned him about the consequences if he did not. 
In fact, Paul's warning about, quote, judgment to come, unquote, was so forceful that, quote, Felix trembled, unquote. I emphasize that despite popular opinion to the contrary, Paul saw the advantage of fear motivation in his effort to prompt Felix's obedience. Other examples of such fear motivation can be found in a host of passages in both the Old and New Testaments. A visitor to the services that day, a Christian, wrote the following response to the lesson, quote, Fear tactics would be great if they worked, but what is the bottom line? Did Felix obey the gospel? What about the world today? Fear runs away, love draws. Yes, truth should be preached, but I believe more will be converted and stay with the positive love of God and all the blessings in Christ. It's not hard to conclude that this lady did not like the sermon. She's not the first, nor will she be the last, to find something wanting in a particular lesson. But more careful analysis reveals that she was not just finding fault with this sermon, she was, in fact, criticizing the inspired apostle himself. Do you see it? She clearly implies that Felix would have likely obeyed if Paul had only had enough sense to put more emphasis on, as she said, the positive love of God. Well, the truth remains. And we should not forget it. Hebrews 10.31 says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we need to tell folks so. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I'm Larry Raspberry, a member of the College View Church of Christ, with a question for you. Do you believe in parachutes? I suppose you do. You believe they exist? But that's not what I mean. There's a difference between believing something or someone exists and putting your confidence in it or him. One who has seen a parachute knows they exist, but has never put his confidence in one. Trying one on while standing on the ground isn't faith either. Going up in a plane intending to jump out with a parachute on is not faith in the parachute either. Opening the door at the moment of truth and gazing outside to the ground is not faith either. It is only when one jumps out the door, counts to ten, and pulls the ripcord that he has actually put his faith in the parachute. Many of you believe parachutes exist, but only a few have actually put your faith in one. Many people in the world say they believe God exists, but only a few put their faith in him for salvation by doing what he says. We'd love to help you in developing a saving faith in God. If we can be of assistance, please contact us. Send an email to questions at collegeview.com or call us at 877-381-4567. And thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study. Quit checking your email. The commercials are over and the Virtual Bible Study is ready to roll. Take it away, guys. Hey, we're back on the program. Remind you, this program is brought to you by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. If you've been listening to the program for long, you know that is the case. And you also know our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. We'll just tell you you need to go there and find out more information about the upcoming services that are coming up at the College View Church of Christ. Uh, find out more, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. Talking about Jesus and alcoholic wine, or is is there any connection with alcoholic wine and Jesus in the Bible? We're looking at that. And now the discussion about those who said Jesus was a wine-bibber and a glutton. Yeah, before we did, uh, one comment in the chat room from Rick. He says, "Look, uh, Proverbs twenty three thirty one. Look thou not on the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. Would Jesus do something that would directly contradict what the wise man of old said? It is a huge, a huge leap from look not to it's okay to drink alcoholic drinks even if someone qualifies it with if he doesn't get drunk. And I think Rick is right about that. Okay. All right. Now, 
And Matthew, Matthew, Luke uh, both uh, reference this episode. In Matthew chapter 11 it is, beginning verse 18, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he hath the devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. This is being used to say, to prove that Jesus drank alcoholic wine. Uh, a Presbyterian author named Kenneth Gentry said Jesus himself drank wine. As a matter of fact, he makes reference to his practice of drinking wine as a vivid illustration of a distinctive difference between himself and his forerunner, John the Baptist. So people are saying... The fact that Jesus was called a wine bibber proves that he drank wine. Well, first of all, you got to acknowledge these are his enemies who are making this accusation against him. So really, you can't put much stock in it at all, in, in anything that they said, because they're trying to destroy his influence and example. And by the way, they weren't accusing him of drinking moderately, social drinking. They were accusing him of being a drunk. The word wine bibber literally means a tippler, a drunk. So understand that they were accusing him of being a drunk obviously, and a glutton. By obviously, the way. their accusations were false. So they were false. But the argument that is made is, well, they couldn't even make the argument if he didn't drink some. Yeah. No, they saw him drinking wine, and therefore they they fault they saw him eating too. By the way, and they saw him drinking wine, and they falsely accused him of being a glutton and a, and a wine bibber. That's that's the argument. But they couldn't have accused him of being a wine bibber if they didn't know that he drank wine. Mm-hmm. Okay. What kind of wine? Mm-hmm. They see Jesus with a glass in his hand. They they can't tell whether that's alcoholic wine or or what we would call grape juice. Right. Uh, Jesus acknowledged. He said, "The Son of Man comes eating and drinking." John. He, he referenced John. He said, "John." Uh, came neither eating nor drinking. They say he had the devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and wine bibber. Jesus is contrasting himself with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, by most accounts, lived as uh, um, a Nazarite. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luke chapter 1 right. teaches the, the rules of the Nazarite uh, and Luke chapter 1, verse 15 says that he consumed nothing from the grape. So Jesus is acknowledging there's a difference between him and John the Baptist. John the Baptist didn't drink, didn't consume anything that came from the grapevine. That's what a Nazarite would have done. John probably was, though it doesn't say it specifically. Yeah. Jesus acknowledges he does dr- consume things that come from the grapevine. That's all he's acknowledging. And, and really, they're taking that and saying, well, he's a drunk then. He's a wine bibber. Yeah. Jesus drank something from the grapevine. But to go further than that and say then he obviously drank intoxicating wine is not proved in the text. Yes. And, and, and remember, these are his critics who are making that accusation. And they're trying to destroy his influence. And so they're going to take the fact that he eats something and call him a glutton. They're going to take the fact that he drinks something that comes from the grapevine and call him a drunk. Neither one of them were true. Absolutely. So, so they, one author I read after, I thought it was kind of interesting, said that the critics of Jesus were unscrupulous, malignant, and not noted for the truthfulness. And I think that I would argue the same thing. Now, point being is, again, these are not our affirmative arguments. All we're saying is, you can't conclusively prove from that that J- J- Jesus drank intoxicating wine. But that's how people want to use it. 
And and all I'm saying about that text is, same with the wedding feast at the Cana Galilee, you can't use that text to come to the firm conclusion that Jesus drank and supplied intoxicating wine. These are not our affirmative passages. We're just showing that the people who want to use them that way are not are not able to do so fairly in the context. All right. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. Again, you're taking an argument that's made by those who are being critics of Jesus, who are obviously falsely accusing him of something, and you're basically and you're basing your justification on what a false accuser has accused Jesus of. When there's lots of there are a lot of possible explanations as to why they would call Jesus a wine bibber, their motivation certainly was uh, not pure. And Jesus's lifestyle was markedly different than John the Baptist, giving them reason to make false accusations against him. But they do not prove that Jesus was engaged in the consumption of alcoholic beverages. Aaron says in, in an email, even though the charge was made by his enemies, it seems hard to imagine that it would have gotten much traction if Jesus were known for refusing the drink of the common man and insisting only on unfermented wine. You see, that's the argument. That's the argument that's being made from this text, and that's what I'm denying. He often ate in public, so his practice was no secret. So I believe that this passage suggests but does not prove that Jesus drank the same drink as the common man, which at some times of the year may have been fresh juice, but was often weakly fermented sour wine. That cannot be proven from the text, but this seems to be a charge that could not have been leveled with a straight face about a man if he were known for publicly refusing the same drink that most people drank. I think you'd have to go to... I'm not going to grant, although I won't argue... Uh, that the common man drank intoxicating wine. I don't. The, the, they were known for going to extremes to preserve unfermented wine. We're, we're going to talk, talk about, about that, that next, next week. week. And uh, so, that, so they. I, I think the statement uh, that they, they could only get unfermented grape juice at certain times of the year is not founded. Yeah. And so I'm going to I'm going to quibble with Aaron about that. But understand my point here. My point is, that's not my passage. I'm not going there to prove that we should abstain. But I don't think you can go there and prove that Jesus drank intoxicating wine either. I'm just saying there's there are reasonable alternative explanations that take that passage away from the people who would like to use it to prove we can drink intoxicating wine. That passage doesn't prove their point. That's all I'm saying about it. Uh, Rick says uh, Jesus' statement in Luke, uh, the statement about Jesus in Luke 7:34 in the greater context, several false charges are made, and this is one of them. Rick's conclusion is: Are we to stake our position on a false charge? I think that's right. Uh, I think that's now again. Let's let's also let's also note that these are some of the same people that would later accuse the apostles in Acts chapter two of being drunk on new wine, and so they're they're pretty free at making these accusations. Obviously, the apostles hadn't been drinking. Uh, in uh, in Acts chapter two, and the apostles, or Peter, very clearly points that out. But these people are making these false charges about people that are totally unfounded, as they did in Acts chapter two. They're doing it the same with Jesus here. Yeah. All right. Uh, real quickly, one more thing, and then we're going to have to hurry to try and talk about some other issues when we get back from this next break. But some, I, I, uh, I've actually talked to somebody, Jacob. You and I studied with a fellow who believed that Jesus drinking wine on the cross of Calvary somehow proves. It's okay for us to drink intoxicating wine. I don't know if you remember that conversation or not. Jesus was offered things to to drink two times on the cross. The first thing he was offered was called vinegar. Oh, no, excuse me. The first thing he was offered was wine. They gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, and he received it not. Mark 15, 23. Uh, 
Adam Clark says wine mixed with myrrh was given to malefactors at the place of execution to intoxicate them and make them less sensible to pain. Jesus refused. That was intoxicating wine, and it was mixed with drugs that would increase its effect. It was a mixed wine or a spiced wine. Jesus refused it. But later, he uh, Mark 15.36 says, One ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. Here, Adam Clark goes on and says, Christ therefore refused the first wine, but if vinegar was offered him, which was taken merely to assuage thirst, there'd be no reason for rejecting it. The word there for what he took is in the Greek, oxos, and it is formed, according to Alan Hovey, uh, in Shikar and Levin in the Mosaic offerings, he says that this oxos is made when ver- venous fermentation is not well regulated, wine is converted into vinegar. Another source says it was neither exhilarating nor intoxicating. So uh, the, the point of that is Jesus did drink something. But I'm going to tell you something. I, I, even if it was alcoholic, you know, somebody might argue whether that vinegar or some, some uh, translations say sour wine, even if it was intoxicating. You've got sources that say it wasn't, but even if it yeah, was. Yeah, we've got sources that say it wasn't. But if you granted that it was, this is clearly a, this would clearly be the equivalent of a medicinal use mm-hmm. of wine. Mm-hmm. This was not Jesus at a party drinking wine. Right. This is Jesus in the agonies of death throes yeah. taking something that he didn't even choose that, right. was, that was almost forced upon him. I don't see how you, I mean, I, to me, if you're going to use that to justify moderate social drinking, you're grasping at straws desperately. Okay. I think we should skip our last break because we've got 15 minutes to go. Okay. Let's we've skip got our a lot of ground to cover. Jesus made reference to wine in his teaching, and some would so, okay. say. So let's just summarize. We took three things that people want to use from the example of Jesus, from his deeds, and said that they try to use those to prove that you can drink alcohol today, and we're saying... They don't work. They're not our verses. We're not trying to prove our position from those verses. They're trying to prove their position from those verses, and they don't work. Yeah. And again, it's an all-or-nothing proposition. Either Jesus was all in for it, or he was uh, totally abstinent. You can't have it both ways. Yeah. You can't you can't straddle this fence either if you want to be like Christ. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me, real quickly on that last point about what Jesus drank on the on the cross. Uh, Aaron said, "We do not know what kind of wine was offered." Mark fifteen twenty three. But we know more about what he drank in Mark fifteen thirty six. It was the same drink that was probably in the flask carried by the soldiers. It was at least weakly fermented, and he drank it for the purpose of alleviating thirst. Since thirst was not what killed him, this was not a medicinal use. The medicinal gall had already been refused, but this was a fermented drink that he drank to relieve thirst without sin. I, I, I would not, again, I'd quibble with Aaron about that. You can't use that circumstance to justify He wasn't so, kicking back social with the, the apostles and, and having a cold one here. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would disagree. Okay. I, I think that's an incredible stretch to try and go there to prove social drinking. Okay. Okay. Right. Now... So his practice didn't justify, doesn't justify the use of wine. What about his teaching? Well, one time Jesus said something about new wine in old bottles. Yes. Matthew chapter, well, let's see. Let's look at Luke chapter 537. It's mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in Luke 537, Jesus said, No man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled, and the, wine, and the bottles shall perish. Now, this this statement of Jesus is used for one specific purpose, Jake. 
And the purpose is to try to establish that people in that time did not know how to prevent grape juice from fermenting. Yeah. That's the only way, that's the only reason this statement's being used. Yeah. They're saying Jesus acknowledged you can't keep grape juice from fermenting. You don't put new wine in old bottles. The idea is the old bottles would have been open to the air and they would have the elements, the remnants of previous fermentation right. active in, in the in the inside of that old wine right. skin. You put new wine in there, that's going to activate the fermentation process. You can't keep wine, or you can't keep grape juice from fermenting. That's how they want to use that statement. Yeah, and you don't put you put what you do is that grape juice is going to ferment, so you want to put it in a new a new bottle, so that as as it, it that the gases are released, the bottle will expand, and then you can have that. Those booze when you when you're having a party with your friends, you don't want to lose them. You yeah. want to make sure you preserve those booze. So yeah. you put them in that new bottle so they're not spilled. Yeah. Actually, what the people who make that argument don't know is that they're actually proven the opposite of what they want to prove. Right. You put new wine in new. It, first of all, no wine skin, new or old, no wine skin can prevent fermenting wine from bursting. Yes. Uh, I read one. I read one source that said a, a cubic inch of sugar will produce. Where did I find this? Uh, one cubic inch of sugar transformed into carbonic gas. The gas produced during fermentation takes up to forty times more volume. I actually read one place. You put you put wine in a wooden barrel and seal it off while it's fermenting. It'll burst the wooden barrel. Blow it up, huh? You cannot, uh, no wineskin could keep fermenting wine from bursting if it was sealed. You know, we got, we've got biblical commentary on that. Jude, uh, Job 32, 19, Job wanted to speak. He said, no, belly, this, is, this is actually Elihu, okay, okay. The, the young man who yeah, came right, right. late to the discussion. And he's, he's, got, he's got his talk. He said, behold, my belly is as wine which hath no vent. It is ready to burst like new bottles. You can't. New bottles burst. Yeah. You, so you're not putting your you're not putting your wine in skins to ferment it. No. Jesus or not, to prevent it from fermenting. He's not giving you instructions on how to how to make your wine there. Yeah. And and so the point of that is, you put new wine in new bottles that are specially treated to preserve wine unfermented. Uh, one source said. It, when it was desired to preserve a quantity in the sweet state, an amphora was taken and coated with pitch within and without. It was filled and corked so as to be perfectly airtight. You can keep wine from fermenting. We're going to talk extensively about that next week, Lord willing. But Jesus' point about new wine and old bottles uh, was was not uh, a statement made to prove that you can't keep wine from fermenting. Now, in, in fact, if you look at the context... It's, it's about compatibility here. we we'll talk about that in a minute. But what he's saying here is you want to preserve that new wine. And you can. You can preserve it, but you don't do it by putting it in old wineskins because you put it in old wineskins, there's the remnants of fermentation there, and that starts the process. And that new wine is not no longer good anymore. It's gone to the bad. It's fermented. And it's going to burst whatever wineskin okay. it's in. Right. Okay. All right. Now, in that same context, Jesus made another statement that is sometimes used to try and justify drinking. He said in Luke 5.39, No man having drunk old wine straightway desireth new, for he saith, The old is better. Uh, now get that. People saying, well, Jesus acknowledged old wine, fermented wine, is better than new wine, unfermented wine. This Presbyterian author, Kenneth Gentry, said that Jesus is speaking of the well-nigh universal prevalence of uh, 
preference of men to prefer old fermented wine over new unfermented wine. The Lord himself makes reference to this assessment. An author named Tilson said, without a word of criticism, as if expressing a truism with which he himself agrees, Luke records Jesus as saying, no one after drinking old wine desires new. All right, now, I think you just got to look at the context there. Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees, his critics. He's dealing with the Pharisees. And what he's doing is that he comes, he's contrasting his teaching with the old teaching and practice of the Pharisees, their interpretation and practice of the law of Moses. Jesus is contrasting what he's teaching new with what the Pharisees were trying to practice and demand others practice that was old. Mm-hmm. In order to prove that you can't do that, that you can't combine the two, that they're not compatible with one another, and that his way was better, he uses three arguments. He says, you, you don't patch an old garment with new cloth because the two cloths are not compatible with one another. Right. All right. Then he said, you don't put new wine in old bottles because you do that. You just have disaster. They're not compatible. You, disaster. You, the, the old will corrupt the new. Yeah. And then he said, anybody who drinks, those who are accustomed to drinking old wine, who are they? Well, they're the drunks. They're the drunks that consume intoxicating wine. People who drink old wine won't want the new. They don't realize the new is better because they like the intoxicating effect of the old. And again, Jesus is the new here. And Jesus is the new. He's not saying, hey, that old, that old law was better. And I'm trying to pull over something here that's inferior to you. You really ought to stick with yeah. the old. Yeah, get, get that picture. If you're saying that Jesus is acknowledging that the old is better than the new, that that was his assessment, then you've got Jesus acknowledging that the old way of the Pharisees are better than the new way that he was teaching. Yep. It, it completely destroys the context. It turns his argument on the head. Jesus said, the only person who thinks the old is better is the drunk who's used to drinking the old. Yeah. And that sort of is indicative of the Pharisees. They were intoxicated with their position and their power, and they liked it the way it was. They wanted to keep it going. And he said they would not like the new because it, it, it was different than what they're used to. Yeah. But it, but actually, the new was superior. But if you've got Jesus saying the old is better than the new, you've got Jesus saying the old law is better than the new way he was teaching. It destroys the the whole meaning of the context. Absolutely. So that uh, the 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 old wine is better argument fails uh, dramatically fails. I think to teach what needs to be taught. Uh, I want to read Aaron's email. This uh, see. Uh, he says, even though old wine was po- popularly acknowledged to be better, this had nothing to do with the al- alcoholic content. I know of at least one ancient writer who talked about old wine being better even when he was speaking of a vintage of grape that he believed did not ferment. So alcoholic content had nothing to do with the preference for old wine. I know some Christians who say that the ancients preferred new wine, but I've read too many examples of the ancients talking about how wine improved as it aged if it was properly preserved. Old was better, but not because of its strength. Aaron, look that. Look at that again, Aaron. You cannot. Jesus is not the one who acknowledged. Jesus himself did not say that. The one who said the old is better is the one who was drinking it. And if if you've got Jesus accepting that view, you've got Jesus saying that the old law and the and in particular the Pharisees' interpretation of the old law was better than the new system that he was teaching, and it just destroys the context and the principle that Jesus was setting forth there. All right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, 
Then, how much time we got? Well, we're getting close on time. We got one last thing that, again, I think constitutes an incredible stretch to those who are trying to justify the drinking of wine. In Luke chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, you know Luke 10 is the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan went to the injured man, bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Again, I, 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 I just it boggles my mind to think people would use this to justify social drinking. But part of the argument is that man had wine with him. See there? Very common. Very common for people to have wine. You know, he had wine with him. Was it intoxicating? Can you prove it was intoxicating wine? We can't prove it was intoxicating wine. I can't prove it wasn't, but it, we don't know. You can't prove anything from that. Yeah. What we do know is uh, one reference says uh, the mixture of two, oil and wine, formed a healing ointment. Pliny mentions oleum glucinum, which was a com- compounded of oil and glucose or sweet wine, as an excellent ointment for wounds. Calumella. Calumella was a, uh, a Roman governor in Syria in the first century. He actually gave a, a recipe for making this ointment of new wine or glu- glucose, new wine, and oil to put it on wounds. Okay. Let's, let's say it was intoxicating wine that the Good Samaritan used. It, by the way, this is a parable, right? Yeah. Trying to make a point out of every element of a parable, often leads us in the wrong direction. But the fact of the matter, this was external. They didn't drink it. And it was medicinal. How are you going to prove social drinking from that? That's crazy. But, I mean, to me, that just sort of illustrates the extremes that some will go to to try and justify that argument. All right. Well, um, and... uh, And Aaron agrees to that. He says this might be an approval of the use of wine, but not as a beverage. This has nothing to do with the subject of drinking fermented beverages. I agree. I mean, I just think you're way out of bounds to try and prove that. All right. Uh, did Jesus drink alcohol? I think there's a few passages in the Old Testament that help us with some of this. Again, we got to remember that Jesus is set forth as our example. Either he was all in, he was for it, or he abstained. You can't be in the middle. Jesus was our king. He's Lord of Lords, King of Kings. In, Luke, in Proverbs chapter 31 Verse 4. Now, again, Jesus is consuming alcohol, according to the people here, promoting it. He's making large quantities of it, giving it out freely at parties without regard to what their their state was. In Luke 31, I mean, Proverbs 31, verse 4, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Yeah. In the Old Testament, they knew kings don't have any business drinking because they'll pervert the law and justice, and they won't be the king that they need to be. Yeah. Now, is that the picture of our king, that Jesus was he was engaged in this activity? When in the Old Testament they had enough sense to know kings have no business doing it. And not only was, is he our king, he's our, he's our high priest. Yes. And the priests under the Old Testament system were forbidden to drink anything. Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus. And, and for the same reason, notice this. Uh, the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, verse 8 of Leviticus 10, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations, that you may distinguish between holy and unholy, and between unclean and, th- and clean. Yeah, there you go. And, and, and Jesus is continuously our high priest. And our king. And do, our king. Do we believe that he came to earth, and he engaged in consuming this beverage, which 
they were told in the Old Testament kings and priests had no business. And by the way, we are also priests. Yes. As Christians. So, you know. And it has the same effect on us as it did in the Old Testament. It, it hinders our judgment to determine clean and unclean uh, between uh, what God wants us to do and what is sin. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Now, uh, so tonight we've tried to talk about Jesus, what he did, what he taught relative to wine. We've just limited it to that. There's a whole lots of other arguments, whole lots of other passages to look at. And I want to emphasize again, these are not our affirmative arguments. We're only going to those passages to show that they are they cannot be used the way the proponents of social drinking want to use them. You, you just can't conclude that. You can't come to those conclusions fairly from those texts. So there's we have affirmative arguments to make, but but not from the ones that we've really. So you've examined. got to take what we've said tonight and couple it with the affirmative arguments that we made in the weeks to come. Yeah. And, and I really want to I really want to tease next week's program. You don't want to miss next week's program. Kyle Pope from Amarillo, Texas, is going to join us, and he and we're going to talk about how the the ancients were able to preserve unfermented grape juice for long periods of time, not just briefly, but for for long periods of time. The reason why that's so important is people make the argument they didn't know how they didn't know how to keep grape juice from fermenting. Obviously, they were drinking intoxicating wine. They didn't have any way to prevent it. Well, guest 2943 in the chat room says, Most Bible scholars say that the wine Jesus drank was fermented. If you say the cult, if you study the culture of that time, you will find that almost everyone drank wine and beer, including children. Obviously, the concentration was extremely low and nothing like it is today. The practice continued throughout the Middle Ages as well. Well, I think we'll find next week that that, that picture may be slightly different than yeah. what is commonly uh, understood. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, People will say that, and he says he might be able to find a, a college uh, uh, course where it was mentioned, a source where it was mentioned. Uh, I, I don't doubt that you can find sources that would say that, but you can find sources that say the other too. So we got to conclude it based upon the context of, of the references in the Bible. All right. Well, it's been a good discussion. If you have comments or that you'd like to share with us about what you've heard, regardless of when you are listening to the program, the email address to use is questions at collegeview.com. And the website to use to be back next week to listen to the program live with Kyle Pope on methods of preserving wine, uh, grape juice or wine in the unfermented state is thevirtualbiblestudy.com. We hope you'll join us for that discussion. Kyle's been behind the board all night. Kyle, thank you for being here. Sorry we haven't talked with you yet, but uh, we appreciate your help tonight. Good to be here. And, uh, Dad, a good discussion. Thanks. Appreciate your time. Thanks. Thank you for joining us. Hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word. We hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And in the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.